Okay, so we are in this teaching series called Exiles, and it's uh, something that we're going through the letter of 1 Peter. Peter wrote to a series of churches in what is now Turkey, but then was called Asia Minor, and these churches were being challenged, persecuted, ostracized because of their confession of faith. Not because they were doing dumb things and they got teased because they were doing dumb things, or they were, uh, were you know, doing things that were illegal and they were having the suffering, the consequences of doing things that because they were illegal. No, they were experiencing challenges in their life simply because of their confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And so Peter is writing them to them to encourage them to continue to go forward even though it's difficult, even though it's a challenge. And so starting today's teaching, uh, I want to start with kind of helping you maybe imagine a scenario. It begins like this. Imagine you're 18 and you apply for a credit card. Sound familiar to anyone? You know, you, you think uh, this is what you do, right? Um, you got to develop credit. You heard you got to develop good credit. Somebody told you that. And so you get a credit card. And the first time you get it in the mail, you go to the store. You're about to go on a date. You're excited about the date. And so, you know, if I was back in the day, I would have bought some Banaka. Anybody remember Banaka? Anybody remember Banaka? Yeah. Somebody, it's like, it goes out there. Uh, but you buy a stick of gum and it's so easy. You just swipe and all of a sudden you have the gum in your hand and like you didn't even have to bring any paper out from your wallet. It just feels, it's magical. It's amazing. And then a month later you get a note in the mail and it just says, oh, now you get to pay that off. And it's easy because it's a stick of gum. And so it's just so easy that, that when you move into a new apartment, you're thinking, well, I'm going to bring that little piece of plastic out and I'm going to activate it again. And so you, of course, get a, a television um, because you need a television. And um, I know people don't need televisions anymore. They, need, they just use laptops. I, I hear that's a thing. But, uh, but I mean, you need a television. And so you get a television and, and you get the bigger one because you want to entertain. You know, you got a space and you want to entertain. So you get the big television swipe and... Then you go to Ikea and you're like, ooh, that couch looks good. And you don't really think about that you're going to have to put it together. Hashtag Ikea life. But, um, <laughs> but, but you get it and, and swipe and then you get a rug, swipe. And then so you got a great spot. And then a month later, you get another letter in the mail from your beloved credit card company. And it was like the first time you like, wait. Um, okay, I'm going to pay the minimum. And then you like look and you're like, oh, this interest, I didn't, somebody hid the interest rate. I swear, somebody hid the interest rate from me. And you're kind of like a little nervous. You feel like something in your chest, like a little breathing, quick breathing. But then a couple days pass and you forget about it. It's like that was, and then you keep swiping. Utilities bill comes in and they have a section where you can pay with your credit card. And so you don't swipe, but you put in the little digits and you mail it off and things seem to be working fine. And then, uh, you know, uh, your car breaks down and you're faced with the challenging situation of what do you do? Uh, do you pay to repair your car or do you get a nice new car? You decide to get a nice new car. And uh, you get one that's make sure that you feel safe, right? Because that's important. And, and you convince the car lot, like, hey, can I just put a lot down on this credit card uh, so that I don't have to pay this large exuberant, you know, monthly fee from you? And you don't really think that there's another monthly fee coming towards you from somewhere else. But you do it, and then you get that bill, and you kind of freeze. Uh, you know you can't even pay the minimum now. And you don't want to ask your parents and you definitely don't want to ask your girlfriend's parents. 
And so you just ignore the paper. It's just paper anyways. And then after a few more months, you start to get different letters, but these are not coming from your credit card company. They're coming from something that says collections. And you freeze, and you don't know what to do. In fact, it gets down so deep into your soul that you struggle going outside and talking with other people because they must know. When you look in the mirror, it's hard to disentangle the debt that you have from the identity that you have. And you see yourself as someone that is full of shame and insecure, and it is connected to this debt. Then you get a call. And it's from the CEO of a credit card company, or so he says, hashtag scams. And he says, just want you to know that I can take all of your debt on myself. I can take care of it and give you a fresh start. How does that sound? And you say, amazing, yes, please, but you're sure that it's not true. And then the next day, two things happen. You get a call that says, hey, just so you know, all of your debts have been paid, you're free and clear. And then you look at your Apple News app because somehow the phone didn't get lost in collections. And there is this credit card CEO that has bankrupted himself by taking on the debt of innumerable, innumerable bankrupt individuals and you're realizing that his bankruptcy meant that you were saved from it. Now, why am I telling you this story? Maybe you have, if you've been around the church more than once, you probably can connect the dots. That this is just even a small glimpse of what Jesus has done. I mean, like, so here's why I'm telling you the story is because too often, whether we've maybe grown up in the church, we get too comfortable with words like salvation. Like, you know, if you like wine, you know, like it's like, can you imagine paying, paying like this big price for a really nice bottle of wine and then just going, you know? No, it's like you savor something of significance. But the word salvation Though it means such something of significance, it's easy to rush by it if you've been overexposed or overheard it. And then on the other side, if you've grown, haven't grown up in the church, we oftentimes aren't able to appreciate it because we, nobody's brought us in to help us to understand what this stuff is even about. And so we either overhear it or we've underheard it or misheard it. And so I'm trying to help us understand that Jesus Christ became bankrupt not just in a financial sense, but a complete comprehensive sense so that we might be saved from our own existential spiritual bankruptcy. This is important too because verse 13 begins, therefore. So far in our teaching series, we've heard that Peter talk about the recipients of this letter that they've been inheritors. They have an inheritance you could look, they could look around and see that they're just the objects of teasing and challenge from those that don't believe in Jesus. But really, at a spiritual level, Peter's saying, you are ultimately, in, you have received an inheritance. Yes, it meant that your inheritance meant that Jesus Christ became bankrupt in dying on the cross and then rising from the dead. But you, you have received an inheritance because of what he's done. And so that's a lot of what Peter has tried to communicate in the very beginning of his letter. And then he says, therefore. Now this is how scripture works. Scripture doesn't say, it doesn't wag its finger at you and say, behave so that you can get an identity. Scripture says, here's your identity, now live in light of it. 
It's completely different. One leads to shame and captivity. One leads to a deepening sense of who you are as you go out into the world. So scripture in 1 Peter, he's saying, this is who you are. You've been chosen. You're the recipients of an inheritance. Now, therefore, live in this way as we're going on. Therefore, respond to what you just heard. Live in light of that. As he goes on, it says, with minds that are alert, fully sober, let your hope on the grace be brought to you by Jesus Christ, or set your hope on the grace to be brought to you by Jesus Christ and revealed at his coming. The paraphrase of that first line there, be fully alert and sober, could be put your gloves on and think clearly. Peter's like, put your gloves on. Therefore, be fully aware with what you've been given. Don't rush by the words of significance. Savor the fact that you are an object of salvation. Pay attention to it. Uh, appreciate it. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be uh, holy in all all that you do, for it is written, be holy as I am holy. Now we're going to be spending the bulk of our time here looking at this word holy and trying to understand what it actually means. But before we get there, I want to look at two words in the passage I just read. At first it says, do not conform. Now the Greek there basically just means don't trace the outline of the world's ways. Don't let the template of the world be applied to your life. Don't let it impose its mold on you. Don't let whatever is normal out there be your normal. Do not conform. Don't trace the outline of the world's ways. And then Peter uses this word evil desires, which Peter, come on, it's the 21st century. Could you soften the language a little bit? Evil desires, holy smokes. But the word evil desires is one word in the Greek. And it's this epithemia. I know, you're like, wow, cool. <laughs> but here's what epithemia means. Epithemia means over-desire. So Peter, rather than saying evil desires, he's saying the problem is not that you're desiring evil things. The problem is that you're desiring good things in a disordered way. You're over-desiring something that is good created by God. Many of us know this. You can over-desire love and become codependent and toxic and everybody will distance themselves away from you. You can over-desire financial security and become competitive and maybe cheat a little bit to get that financial security for yourself. You can over-desire good things and in so doing, the desire can be corrupt and become an epithemia an evil desire, an over-desire. In fact, every time in Scripture, in the New Testament, when evil desires is used, it is actually just, in the Greek, one word, epithemia. So the question, when you read that, when you're reading your own Bible study, when you're doing your own Bible study, when you get to that word, you can say, okay, am I over-desiring something that's good, that is corrupting it, that's over, that I'm over-desiring it? What God wants to do, what Jesus wants us to do is, is to not conform to the over-desires of the world, but to let Jesus be the one who sets the template, to sets the way, and rightly orders our desires. This is what Peter's saying. And he says, do this as, like, as a part of who you are. He called you holy. He's holy. Be holy. This is, he's, this is who he is. He's holy. Be holy. Live in light of who you are. So let's define holy, defining this word. Speaking of like church words, right? It's the ultimate church word, holy. What does it mean? Holy in the Old and the New Testament, it simply means to be set apart, 
to be completely different. One theologian defined holy in this way, to be wholly other, to be like, to be other in a way where it's like, it's like there's no actual comparison uh, to this thing in, in anything else. One example could be of the sun. In our solar system, there's nothing like the sun. It is powerful. It is unrivaled. It is, in, it is like you can't compare it to anything else. And without it, everything perishes and you get too close to it and you feel its heat. You can go outside even in Tacoma. Let's pray the fog goes away. You could go out on a hot day and even feel the heat, even though we are miles and miles and I don't know how many miles, maybe some of you are Google searching, how many miles away from the sun, we can still feel the heat and suffer from going into it with without being putting on that sunscreen. So similarly in the Old Testament, God is understood as holy and in the New Testament is understood as holy. He is set apart. There's nothing like him in creation because he is creator and going willy nilly into the presence of his holiness, you can get knocked down. And there's examples in the Old Testament of that. God is so holy. Now, this is just an interesting thing about how language is used in the Old and the New Testament. In the, in the Hebrew, they're often, you know, the way you emphasize something as significant is you say it twice. So there's a time in the Old Testament where, like, uh, the story is set and there's, like, a really big pit. And instead of saying really big pit, in the Hebrew, it's just, like, pit, pit. So you're like, oh, you know it's a big pit when he says pit, pit, you know? That's a pit, pit right there. And there's a time, too, when there's like a reference to there being a lot of gold. And uh, instead of saying, hey, there's a lot of gold, it says gold, gold. Oh, there's gold. There's some gold, gold here, you know. In the book of Revelation in the New Testament, how is God described? Holy, holy, holy. Nowhere else is it used three times to emphasize something. That's how holy God is. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. So it. When Moses, if you know the story where he goes approaching the burning bush, the burning bush from God says, stop coming closer. You're not prepared for the holiness proximity factor. Stay away, take your shoes off. God's holiness is significant. Coming into it willy-nilly has effects. In fact, in Leviticus, which is a book that I'm sure all of you have read and studied diligently, Chapter 17 to 26 are these like rules and regulations that are like, this is how you become pure to confidently walk into the holiness of God. If you don't do these steps, then you will be unprepared for his holiness and you will feel the repercussions of being in the presence of his holiness without preparing yourself. There's stories of, of, uh, of priests going in and they, you know, they tie to the, ho- the hot spot in the temple of God, the holy of holies, the place where God dwells and they tie a rope to him because it's like, hey, we don't know what's gonna happen to you. So we're just about to, you know, we don't wanna go in and get you. So we'll tie a rope to your foot. Like this sense of this, this is how holy God is. Now, I want us to understand there's this transition point where something significant, remarkable happens that has never happened before and previous to it in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter six, I think we have a painting describing this painting. Isaiah has this vision that he's in like the holy of holies, in the temple. It's cool because it says like God's robe and like, of course, God doesn't have a robe. He's a spiritual being, but there's this image and we apply things that we understand to God. And so Isaiah has this vision of this robe. The robe of God is like filling the whole place. Like God is so immense and he's so big and he's aware that he shouldn't be there because he is, has unclean, he's unclean. He hasn't prepared himself to be in there. So he says, woe is me, I'm a man with unclean lips. And rather than being just like, 
boom, knocked down, this cherub or this seraphim comes to him. And a seraphim is this crazy angelic creature that covers his eyes and wings. And it's just like pretty wild. Go to Isaiah chapter six for more. Um, but rather than something uh, like knocking him down because of the presence of, of the, the holiness, the, cher- the cherubim or the seraphim brings this hot coal and says, I will take away your guilt. And this is the first time where he applies it to Isaiah's lips and it transforms Isaiah. This is the first time where an impure person in the full presence of God's holiness was not knocked down, but rather transformed. We get a glimpse of Jesus here. The one who is holy. The holy one who comes into the presence of that which is impure and rather than knocking it down with his power, transforms it with his love. Check this out. This happens all throughout the Gospels. Jesus hangs out with a leper, which playing by the Levitical rules, the leper is somebody who needs to stay away from the rabbi and stay away from everyone else there because they're unclean. And the, the leper comes to Jesus and says, will you heal me? And Jesus is like, I am willing. And he heals him. The pic, this painting describes like the, the imagined like proximity of Jesus to the leper. I'm getting close to, I'm not at a distance from you. This is the heart of God that the impure would be made pure by the Holy One. Like this is like the heart of God and he comes to the, those that are ethnically other. He comes to a woman that doesn't even share his religion and he, sh- he shares his heart and it transforms her. This is constantly the way of Jesus described that this the heart of God is fully holy. He's holy, 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 but he doesn't, his power isn't overwhelming in a negative way. It transforms. This is, the, this is Jesus Like the coal in Isaiah 6, this is a picture of the vision of holiness expressed ultimately on the cross where Jesus becomes the impure one by dying so that he might transfer his holiness to us, reconciling us. This is holiness on display in the heart of Jesus that it wouldn't be held away from us, but transferred to us by his own bankruptcy so that we might receive an inheritance. Verses 17 to 21 say, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your lives or your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Take it seriously. Pay attention. Don't just gulp the fine wine, but savor the significance. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but the precious blood of Christ. Precious. A lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. What is Peter saying there? He's saying in a very summarized fashion, live as though, or live as you really are. Live as you are. When my kids were young, I would do this thing often with them where whether I'm changing their diaper or putting them down, oftentimes I would just sit there like for 20 minutes and look at them and say, dad, daddy, my child, my kid, 
Sometimes I would say their names. Zoe, Soren, Dad, my, cat, my kid, Zoe, or my, my dad, my, 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 my kid. And I would do this back and forth and like, I would not get bored of it. I would probably take 20 minutes just, just kind of fawning over them and trying to just share, this is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. I can tell you in parents in the room, you know this, you, you don't want them to lose that sense of who they are. You don't want them to move away from what you've sought to pass on to them, what you've sought to deposit in them. You want to grow up into the rich identity and flourish into the who they truly are, how you know they are. And when you see them move, Moving away from that, it breaks your heart. You want them to grow up into who you know they truly are. It's what you desire. And this is the heart of God, that he would look over you and say, holy. I know when you look in the mirror, it's easy to assess yourself by your most recent mistake. But holy, holy. I know when you reflect on that relationship that is still strained, it's easy to think that of your life as like, as like oh, just identify, it's just, really, it's just that mistake, but no, holy. I know when you look at your bank account, it's easy to see maybe a, a person who's just like made some dumb decisions that are financially, but no, holy, 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 holy. Because holy. It's important to know that. The source of holiness is not our own best intentions or our best works. Lest we should boast, right? But the source of holiness is the one who is holy, holy, holy. Who became bankrupt so that we might receive an inheritance. Holiness, uh, this, this is what holiness is. But what holiness looks like, you know, you can observe holiness. Uh, and oftentimes, like in the church, holiness, uh, you know, like is understood as like abstaining from certain things. Like, so um, as Flannerly O'Connor says, you know, like we, uh, we judge our holiness on a, on, a, on a slide rule of a sin. You know, it's like, well, we kind of like have this slide rule assessing how holy we are based upon what we abstain from and who we're around. Well, I'm better than them and I haven't done this, then therefore I'm holy. But holiness is not that. Holiness rather than just abstaining from something negative. So in Chapter uh, one, verse 22, it says, now that you have been purified, your, or now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Peter's saying, don't like apply this topical love to your relationships where you're able to smile and have this surface level, superficial love, but love each other deeply from the center of who you are, recognizing that you were a recipient of God's love and, and you didn't deserve it, but you're, you're, you're charged to give the love that, the, to others that they may not deserve. Love one another deeply from the heart. That's what holiness looks like because that's what we received from the one who is truly holy. And then in chapter two, verses one to three, it talks about like the, the, the opposite of love. And so therefore rid yourselves. So we're to love each other from the heart and we are to rid ourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. And like newborn babies crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. One of the most famous novels in history, Les Mis, Les Miserables, French pronunciation. 
At the center of it, there's these two characters. Maybe you've watched the movie, the musical, seen it, read it. Um, but there's Javert, Inspector Javert, and then there's Jean Valjean. And Inspector Javert uh, is this just rigid, righteous inspector who is pursuing Jean Valjean because of a minor mistake he made in his life. And as the story develops, what's interesting is, is Javert, who is outwardly righteous, becomes hypocritical and self-righteous. And, and, and you, would, you would think, you know, like, and the one who is, has a mistake in his past is really the one who looks more and more like he is holy. And so oftentimes our vision of holiness, historically even inside the church, if I can say, is this righteousness that becomes self-righteousness that becomes something that is the opposite of holiness. And Peter's list here, it's something we abstain from, hypocrisy, slander, malice, judging sin on a slide rule, I'm better than them and I am abstaining from this, ergo I'm holy. Peter says, holiness is loving one another from the heart, recognizing that you are the object of God's love and that others can be the object of your love as you are empowered by the God who is love and who is holy. Andrew Murray says, the chief mark of counterfeit holiness is a lack of humility, a lack of looking inward and how am I? Who am I? Where have I? Every seeker after holiness needs to be on his guard, he says, lest unconsciously what was begun in the spirit is perfected in the flesh and pride creep in where its presence is least expected. Holiness is love. Holiness looks like love. Are you offering that love to those near? Are you offering that love to those far? Are you finding yourself saying, I'm better than them because I'm abstaining from this? Or are you finding yourself saying, I have received such, such an inheritance. Why would I withhold from those who are near and far? This is what holiness looks like. It looks, frankly, succinctly like God. To invite the band up, I want to um, offer uh, an invitation. To some of us here, um, we may have been in the church multiple times or have gone to, uh, been around Christians, uh, but we haven't ever said yes to that message where God in Christ became bankrupt so that we might receive an inheritance. And so the invitation to some of us who haven't said yes to that message is to say simply Yes, yes, I want to be saved from not just financial bankruptcy, but spiritual bankruptcy. I want that inheritance applied to me. And in one way, it's very simple. It's just saying yes. In another way, it's very profound. It means a heart commitment to a holy God, knowing that he is for you. And so if you are saying yes today, I want to invite you to do one of two things. Simply talk to the person that you're either here with and say, that's me, and then ask them to pray for you, or go to one of our prayer stations on the corner. We have these black walls, and there's people that are there that have been trained how to pray and, and offer care and love to a wide variety of needs. And secondly, you may have said that commitment, and it may have been a real one, a yes to Jesus, a long time ago, and, but it feels like a long time ago. 
And maybe you've kind of like found yourself conforming to some of these over desires. I want to invite you just to say yes to that message. Again, realigning your heart with the one who loves you deeply. If that's you, tell someone you, you came with. Say, that's me. Would you pray for me? Or go to the, one of the prayer stations. Every week we do communion because we think every week it's, is a good week to be reminded of, what, of God's love on our behalf. So Jesus, with the disciples, the Last Supper, he took bread and he says, this is my body. It's, it's, it's you know, given for you. And he, he broke it and says, this is it's for the new covenant, forgiveness of sins. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. It's shed for you. New covenant, forgiveness of sins. Do this together as long as you get together. Do it in remembrance of me. So as we come forward to the communion on any of the stations, the gluten-free is by the sound booth, know that in coming forward, you're receiving just a glimpse, a taste of the inheritance that he's offered us through the symbols of the bread and the cup. Okay, before we move forward in this next song, before we move into prayer, before we move into communion, I just want to pray for you. So you might close your eyes, you might extend a hand. And I just pray that we would get a vision of the Father saying, holy, as he points to himself. Holy, as God points to himself. Holy, I'm holy. And then looking at you, just imagine him looking at you eye to eye and him pointing to you and saying, holy, holy, holy. Pointing at himself, holy pointing at you, holy. God, we may, that we may assess ourselves in light of your words over us. That we may not assess ourselves in light of whatever the, uh, the mirror or the bank account or the strained relationship says, but that we might know ourselves as holy because of what you've done on our behalf. That we might not rush by words of significance, but savor them as fine wine. Would you apply this truth to our heart? Enable us to appreciate it afresh again, relish it. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus.